Luke chapter 6, and if you find it quickly, then go to Matthew chapter 7, because we're going to read both accounts here of the same parable in our um, message today, and the title is Christ's Call to Obedience. Christ's Call to Obedience. How many of you ever sung when you were a child in Sunday school, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the foolish man built his house upon the sand? Did you ever read that or sing that? Did you? Okay. And I always liked the part at the end when the house, the house went falling down. Is that what it said? And then it, all the kids fell down on the floor, you know. And so um, we're not going to ask you to do that here today. However... Uh, You're familiar with this story, but I want you to read it. It's a simple little story before I read it. It's a simple story. And Jesus Christ gave in the book of Luke 23 different parables. What is a parable? A parable is a simple story. A parable is a story so simple, it's almost like a story you would tell to a child at night a bedtime story. Jesus made sure that he put the cookies on the bottom shelf where everybody could understand them. And so his parables are extremely simple, common stories from life that everybody could experience and identify with. There are 23 of them in Luke. There's about 39 or 40 of them sprinkled throughout the Bible. Here's the thing about the parables. You read them and they seem like Ah, that's so simple. I I know all about that. Let me say to you kindly, no, you don't. There is a depth of wisdom in the parables of the Lord. You know, Jesus is called in Corinthians the wisdom of God. Not the wisdom about God. He is the wisdom of God. And he told these simple stories Don't let the simplicity and the commonness of it go right by you and think, oh, I got that one. Because every one of them have the wisdom of God in them. Now, let's look at the wisdom of God, huh? And we're in Luke chapter 7, verse number 46. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? A question. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he's like. He's like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house, violently, we would say. And the house could not be shaken, for it was founded upon a rock. And he that heareth and doeth Not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Now, that is Luke's account of this story of Jesus. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. And in Matthew chapter 7, In verse number 24, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and 
doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. Note, Luke doesn't call him a wise man and a foolish man, but Matthew does. If you hear the sayings of Jesus and you do them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. A rock, not the rock, okay? And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened to a foolish man, who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And thank you, and you may be seated. <clears throat> the context of both of these parables is the same. Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and it, while your Bible is there in Matthew, just look with me. You begin in chapter 5, verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he taught them, blessed are, and so on. Now, all of chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. All of chapter 6 is the Sermon on the Mount. All of chapter 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Over a 100 verses Matthew gives us, of the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ concludes his teaching. If I were teaching this to a group of preachers in a homiletics class at a seminary or Bible college, I would say, okay, now I've taught you the material. Here is the conclusion. This is how to wrap up all the teaching that I've brought to you thus far. Now, I go to the book of Luke, our primary passage that we're looking at on this. And in Luke, it's a much shorter account. Instead of it being over 100 verses, Luke begins the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 and in verse number 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, and it only goes through the end of the chapter, so it's about 29 verses. So Luke left out much of the material that Matthew included in his version of the Sermon on the Mount. But in both places, at the conclusion of the teaching, the Lord says, now I've taught you the material. You have the information. Now, here is the conclusion. I'm drawing this down to a conclusion. I want you to get it because this is what I want you to do. Here is a practical application of the teaching that I have given to you in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to notice also, look with me, if you will, in verse 13 of Luke 6, and you will see that Jesus specifically directed the Sermon on the Mount to Christians, to his disciples. Now, there was a multitude that had come that day, but in both cases, it says, in both cases, Matthew and Luke, Jesus sat down, and he directed his remarks specifically to his disciples, to his apostles, who he had just appointed. 
Now, if you will notice also in verse number 20 of Luke 6, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Twice it says disciples. What is my point? My point is this is not directed to unsaved people. The teaching of today is for Christians. It is a teaching that is a call to obedience in our lives. It assumes that we're already disciples, that we're already God's people. The teaching in both Matthew and Luke is specifically directed to disciples. Are you a disciple? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you already come to the place where you've put your faith and trust in Him for your salvation? And now you're learning and growing and developing in your Christian life and in your obedience to Him. That's who Jesus is directing this to. Now, I want you to look in verse 46. He asked a question. Why do you call me Lord? Lord. And he emphasizes the word Lord, repeating it. Why do you even call me Lord if you don't intend to do the things that I say? These are the, word, the question of Christ to his disciples. You see, to call somebody Lord, we use that word casually. They didn't use it casually. To call someone Lord is to acknowledge that they have authority. To call someone Lord is to say, you're over me and I submit myself to you I will follow your leadership. To call someone Lord and to disobey them is really to be hypocritical. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody who professes to be a Christian but lives in a, in a completely different way. To call the Lord Lord and not to obey him is, in essence, to lie. And so Jesus puts that question in there and over in the book of, of, of Matthew, he, he rephrases a little bit. Not everybody who says Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. There are people who use the terminology, but they don't, they don't obey me. Now, he even says that some people over there in, in the book of Matthew, Matthew he even says that some people have done wonderful things. They've done mighty religious works but that they don't really know him as their Savior. Keep in mind, again, I want to say it to you because you'll miss the whole teaching today of God's Word. When Jesus taught this parable, the parable of the wise man and the foolish man, the two houses, he is not teaching works for salvation. We don't believe in works for salvation. We, be we believe salvation is by grace. That's without any human merit. Salvation is by grace through faith and not of our, ourselves anything that we do. It is a gift that God bestows upon people who put their faith and trust and reliance in Him. And so we're not teaching works for salvation, but Jesus is teaching works as evidence of salvation. In this parable, I want you to know what a parable is, first of all. A parable is an earthly story that has a spiritual meaning and application. And Jesus always introduced his parables with the same word. Look in verse number 47. 
I will show you to whom he is like. And so he always is comparing using the word like, and he uses he is like in verse 47, in verse 48, and in verse 49. He uses the word like in each verse because he's comparing something earthly with something spiritual with something heavenly, okay? Now, I've got five points I want to give to you as quickly as I can, and you might want to write them down. First of all, I want you to notice that the two men, and they're both building a house. Two men, each one is building a house. They're doing the same thing on the surface at least, aren't they? Now, let me make the application. Building the house, I want you to think of that as building your life. Building the house represents building a life. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you need not turn there. I'll just read it to you. But Paul says, according to the grace which is given unto me, as a wise master builder or architect, really is the word there, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. Let every man take heed how. Notice the word how, not what he builds, how he builds. Let every man take heed how he builds this house of life, if you will. Verse 11, for no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, who is Jesus Christ. So he warns us here, it is important how we build our lives, how we live our lives. Now, the houses don't represent salvation. The houses represent obedience, following the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, this is a call to discipleship. I want you to think of your, house, your life as a house, and your life has rooms in it like the house. It has a family room. Most houses have a living room or a family room. And that refers to, as a disciple, what am I doing about my family? Am I building a family on the right foundation? Or am I building my family life on the sand of this world's wisdom and philosophy? The family room in every house, it's important how it's built. What would a house be without a kitchen? <laughs> it would be a motel, wouldn't it? <laughs> and so... There's a kitchen in your house. Kitchen's where you go to get strength. The kitchen's where you go to get nourishment. That's where your food comes. And you nourish yourself and you strengthen yourself in the kitchen. What are you doing to build your life to make it strong and healthy and a life that brings honor to the Savior that we say that we serve? Every life has a family, and we have a kitchen. Our houses usually have a little office space, a desk, or maybe a study, or a whole office. That's where we carry out the business transactions of life. That's where our financial life is centered. That's where we pay the bills. And are we building our life on the right financial priorities, the right financial base. Every home has a bedroom. 
and we go to the bedroom for rest. And the bedroom is where we replenish our strength after we're weary and we're tired. What are you doing in your life to replenish yourself, to stay healthy and strong in the Lord? So he is comparing life to a house. And he's saying, one man heard my instructions, and he obeyed them explicitly. The other man heard my instructions. He did nothing that I asked him to do. At the end of the day, which house is going to survive? Two men, each building a house. Number two in this simple little story, I want you to notice the only difference in the houses is the foundation. And when it describes the two houses here, there's no difference in them except for one really, really important thing. And what is that? It's the foundation. Now, I've talked to builders and and, and, and seeing building projects here at the church. And my wife and I have built a couple of houses in our lifetime. And you know what the builders told me in every case? The most important part of a house is the foundation. I remember when we were building this building here because to slope this floor down, they had to dig down several feet. We're, uh, the floor here is a couple of feet lower than it is back up there at the doors. And I remember how they came in here and they poured the concrete and they put the steel rebar in it. And I was in a hurry. I was coming over here three or four times a day wanting to see this church finished and get it. You know, I was impatient. And every time I'd come over here and it looked to me like it took them six months to build the foundation. They spent more time on the foundation than they did on the rest of the building, so it seemed to me. And I asked the superintendent one day, why in the world is it taking y'all so much time? You have to tamp down the dirt. Then you dig it up and then you tamp it down again and on and on and on. And he said, Pastor, we are digging down into this mud and this muck, this is swampy ground here. And this building, the most important thing we're going to do won't be the things that people will ever see. The foundation is the most important part of this auditorium. And you know what he said to me, I've never forgotten. The most important part of this building is the part that nobody will ever see. It's down here under the ground. It's foundational. And these two men both built, and the only difference is what you don't see. It's the foundation. Notice with me verse 47 and 8. The first man, Jesus refers to him in Matthew as a wise man. He dug deep. He dug deep. I mean, he went down in the ground. He took the bulldozers or whatever they used in those days, and he dug out the surface dirt, and he tamped it down, and then he went all the way down to the bedrock, which in Israel is not very hard to do. I want you to look at verse 47. Take your pen or pencil and underline some key words here. He cometh to me. Circle that word, cometh. And then he heareth, the word heareth. And then he doeth. He came to the Lord, he heard what the Lord said, and he does, he applies it, he carries it out, he obeys the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's the formula for a blessed life, ladies and gentlemen. Would you like to have a blessed life? Right there is the formula for it in verse 47. A, a blessed life not only now, but in the life to come. This is a life of true faith. Now, I've defined for you the word faith so many times. You're probably sick of hearing me do it. But it is so essential that people have a proper understanding of what faith is. Right there beside verse 47 is my definition of faith. He hears. He hears the word. He believes the word. He does the word. And then he leaves the rest to the Lord. That's the definition of faith. Now, notice the other man, verse number 49, he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation builds a house upon the earth. And Jesus calls him a fool in Matthew. He calls him foolish. Notice what he does. He hears the truth. He intellectually knows what the truth is, but he doesn't act upon the truth. He doesn't really believe the truth enough that he is willing to do what the Lord said for him to do. Notice something else there in that verse. He built his house upon the earth, or the foundation upon the earth. In fact, it doesn't say that he even dug. This is a man who takes shortcuts. You've been around houses where the builder took a shortcut, haven't you? Everybody's probably either owned one or you have visited somebody or had a friend who had a house that they took the shortcuts, and the house is inferior. And here's a man who takes the shortcut. I don't have time to go and dig that out, muck out that old mud. I don't have time for all of that. I'm going to just put the found. I'm, I'm going to build the house right here right on the earth. The earth, by the way, in the Bible, every time earth is mentioned, the spiritual inference there is the things of this world. He built his life on the things of this world. He was a worldly man instead of a spiritual man. The other man builds on a rock. This man builds on the dirt itself. Matthew doesn't even say dirt. He says sand. And you know how unstable sand is for a, for a foundation. And so this man builds on the earth, on the sand, took the shortcuts, went the easy route. I speculate. That's the only thing I can do. This text doesn't tell me why. But here's the man, and he says, uh, well, I, I, I'm going to get around to that one of these days, but it's just, it's just too late. We've got to go ahead and build the house. And so he, he neglects it. Or maybe this man is in such a hurry. He said, we just don't have time to, build, we don't have time to dig this thing out and all that. We've got to get in this house. Or maybe he speculates, maybe he just is distracted by something else in life. I don't have time to worry about it, digging out to create a foundation. Maybe he's just proud and arrogant. And he says, well, I know more about it than the man telling me how to build a house. And for whatever reason, reasons unknown to us, but for whatever reason, he chooses to hear the word but he doesn't really believe it deeply, and he shortcuts, and what does he do? He ends up with a house, a life that's built on the sand, 
And when the storms of life come, the whole thing just collapses. By the way, that was an intentional decision. It wasn't that he heard and didn't understand. It was not a mistake. He had other options. He just said, no, nah, I don't need to do that. I'll do it my way. The third thing I see here is that both men and their houses experienced storms. Both men and the houses they were building experienced storms. And again, we're likening the house to life, our life experience. Now, in the text, I won't read it again, but the storms are described in exactly the same words. It might have just been one storm. It might, possibly it was the same storm that both men experienced. They built these houses, one on the rock, one on the sand. Now this major storm comes through. It's a bad one. It, it's like a hurricane. It beat vehemently upon the house. The wind and the floods and the rains came, and the house is besieged. But one stands, and one of them totally collapses. Now, let's apply that to our lives, because the storms are going to come, aren't they? Every now and then, I'll meet somebody that, well, I've never really had any major problems in life. And my word to you is, well, you just keep on living. And in time, I promise you, the storms will find you. There's nobody that doesn't have the storms come to life. It might be health. It might be financial. It might be family. It might be death and bereavement. And I don't, I don't want to make you feel down, but there is no such thing as a life without storms. We live in a fallen and a broken world. Now, sometimes Christians think they get a pass. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I don't understand why this is happening to me. You won't find a word of that anywhere in the Bible, my friend. This whole prosperity theology thing, and you know, if I have enough faith, I won't have these problems. I'll never get sick and all that stuff. Don't believe that that's a myth. There's not a single one of us that's going to live and bypass the storms. We don't get a pass because we're Christians. We have the same storms that everybody else has. In fact, some of us have more than the other people. You know why? Because sometimes God's not trying to teach unsaved people to be Christ-like, but sometimes he has to send a storm to us to teach us to be more like the Lord Jesus, and he tests us in the storm. And so, yes, my friend, whoever you are, the storms are coming. Everybody's going to experience them. And here's what the storm, here's what we can learn looking at the text. The storm reveals the quality of the building. The storm reveals the quality of the building. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket, huh? Whatever is really deep down inside of our lives, it's going to be revealed when the pressure and the storms of life get on. One building on the rock, it stands. The other completely collapses. Great was the fall of it. 
And the only word to the wise is this. Are you preparing for when the storm comes? Because the storms are going to come. Are you making preparation? Are you digging down deep? Are you in the Word of God? Are you serving the Lord? Are you dealing with the temptations and even the sins that may be besetting you? But are you proactive in preparing for the storm? You see, it's too late to start nailing up the plywood and putting out the sandbags after the storm winds have already started. You start before all that happens. You listen to the warnings. Living where we do and experiencing hurricanes every year, we always hear all these warnings, a thousand warnings, please get out, evacuate, and so on. But because the storm wasn't as severe this time, uh, the last time as it was the time before that, we always have these uh, super individualists, and they say, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to ride it out, and then somebody finds their body. We didn't heed the warning. We thought that we, were, we knew more than the, than the warnings. And sometimes we're lucky and we may get by with it, but then there are those times that we're going to pay for it because we, did not, we were not willing to make the preparation. The old prophet in Israel went to the people. His name was Amos. I was reading his book this week in my daily Bible reading. And you know what his, his message to the people of Israel was? Prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. You're going to meet him anyway. You're going to meet him in judgment, or you're going to meet him in reward, but you're going to meet him. And now, when life is somewhat calm, is the time that we are to prepare to meet our Lord. Both men in their houses experienced the storms, and it was too late to make preparation once the storm started. And then, fourthly, I see both men heard the same instructions. Look in verse number 47, whosoever cometh and heareth my words and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. So one came, he heard and he acted, he carried out what his Lord had said. Look in verse 49 and compare it. He that heareth and doeth not is like a man. The old prophet James, or the disciple James, said in chapter 1 of his letter, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Boy, how that needs to be preached. I challenge you, my dear friend, today with that word. Do you come to church and just sit and listen and even agree and say, yeah, I see that. I see where the Bible says, I believe that, Brother Bill. But then walk out the door with really no strong drive or motivation at all to say, now the Bible said it and I must do it. America today is just absolutely full of people who go to church, not as sent when the pastor preaches the Word of God, and walk out the door with really no firm resolve that I'm going to do that. I'm going to carry that out. For me to be a Christ follower, a disciple, I must act on that. 
And all the listening in the world is not going to ever replace for you, my friend. Never will it replace acting. Act a little rather than hear a lot if you have to. Uh, there's a passage on this that's so potent. It's Luke chapter 10. It's just a couple of chapters over. So turn in your Bible with me. You know, Jesus' ministry was centered in Galilee, in the region of Galilee, and there were several cities there. There was, um, there was of course, Capernaum, and there was Nazareth, his hometown, and there was Bethsaida, and there was Chorazin. And Jesus' ministry was centered for the first year or so within a, probably a 40-mile circle. And everything that he did was in that circle. And it would be like Jesus living here in our area and everything that he did. He did it in Florence and Darlington and Johnsonville and Pamplico and, you know, just a small area. And so the news was out on Jesus around all these places. And he had gone and ministered there. He had healed the sick. He had raised the dead. He had preached his messages. He had poured his life into the people in, those, in those, all those towns. And he was experiencing this idea of people hearing but not doing the Word of God. And in verse number 13 of Luke 10, notice what he said. Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works been done in Tyre and Sidon up across the border there in Lebanon, if I had gone there and done all the miracles that I've done for you, they would have already repented. But you've gotten used to hearing the word and not doing anything with it. And what Jesus is saying is that when we stand before the Lord, he's going to judge us for not only what we did, but for the amount of light that we had, for the opportunities that we had. I've said to you in the past, and I say it again, you know, a person that goes to the Florence Baptist Temple for years and years is, has got an awful lot of light. You've got a lot of opportunity. You've got a lot of knowledge. Don't sin against it. Just having the knowledge, just hearing Bill Monroe, just listening to gospel radio, just reading the Bible means nothing unless we are willing to to carry it out. In fact, better to not have the light and better to not hear it than to hear it and not do anything with it. Please, my friend, hear me today. The test of discipleship, the test of whether your house will endure when the storms come is how much have you obeyed the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the test. And the last thing I would have you notice is there are two different results. That's obvious, isn't it? You knew that, obviously. But let's look at it a moment because, you see, one result gives us a life that's on a bedrock, a life that's on a bedrock. This person has been digging down through the years, digging down into the Word of God, digging down into a life of prayer, digging down into serving the Lord in their church. This, this man has built his life on bedrock, the bedrock of obedience, hearing, knowing the Word of God, faith, 
and doing it. It's correct faith. It's a correct faith, hearing, believing, acting on, and resting on. And when the storm comes, no matter how severe, and it's a severe storm, it beat vehemently. No matter how severe the testing in life, he endures. He endures. He may be battered. He may be scarred. He may be hurt. But he's going to make it because his foundation is right. On the other hand, the foolish man builds, his, builds on a foundation of, of sand and the th- things of this earth. And the storm comes, total collapse, total collapse. A counterfeit faith instead of a correct faith. He hears the word. He doesn't believe it very deeply, superficially. He never acts on it, and his whole life collapses. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that happen right in this building. Where someone comes and they even get saved. But there comes a time they just, they don't grab hold. And then it becomes just an exercise of coming and hearing, but not applying it in life. John Wesley taught his preachers to preach their sermon. Most of them preached about 45 minutes. And then he taught them what he called the pleadings, the pleadings, P-L-E-A-D-I-N-G-S, pleadings. And sometimes the pleadings would last longer than the sermons. And what were the pleadings that Wesley was teaching his preachers during those great Wesleyan revivalist days in England? The pleadings were you preach the sermon and teach the people, and then you start asking them questions and you plead with them. You beg them to put into action what you've talked about. You get emotional and urgent with them. You plead with them. You pour out your soul to them because it's not enough that they just hear. Plead with them to do what God's Word says in their life. Most of you are familiar with Anthony Bourdain. He was a celebrity cook. He's from New York City, raised in New York City, went into a restaurant there, started out as a busboy, made his way into the kitchen, became a cook, then a celebrity cook. He wrote two or three books about conditions working in the high-dollar restaurants in New York and the famous people that came there. And, and, and his books became bestsellers. And then Anthony Bourdain went on television, and his story was so interesting, CNN put him on, and his program was called Parts Unknown. And every week it'd be, he would get on a plane and travel to some place in the world, and he would sit in a restaurant, and he would eat the local food, and they would talk to him about how, he would talk to the chef about how it was made, the ingredients, and so on. But, but he always got into the 
local culture into politics and economics and so on. He was a brilliant man, and it was a, a, a fascinating show if you could put up with his, his language. Sometimes it wasn't good at all, but he had it all. How would you like to have a job like that? I mean, I think I could be interested. I might be talked into a job where every week I get on a plane, fly somewhere in the world, eat in the most famous restaurant in the area, sit and talk with the chef, tell everybody about it, and come home and make a lot of money. And so he had wealth, and he had fame, and he had celebrity, and, and he had pleasure. I mean, the ultimate hedonist and pleasure man. I mean, all he has to do, he makes his living eating. And, and after all, that's not a bad life, huh? And I found out when I read about him, he won two Emmys, so he's very recognized. His daddy was a Catholic. His mother was Jewish. He rejected both religions and became an atheist. In fact, Anthony Bourdain said, and I was surprised to read this, he said, I became a follower of Hitchings. Hitchings referring to Christopher Hitchings, the famous atheist who just died four or five years ago. And so he was an atheist, and he had it all, fame, wealth, pleasure. June 2018, he wrapped a lamp cord, a drapery cord around his neck and hung himself in a Paris hotel. And when they took his body down, there was a note in his pocket to his 13-year-old daughter. How do you explain that to a child? Anthony Bourdain wrote to her, I never thought of my life as a temple, but as a fun house. He built a life. It was a building. He didn't think of it as a building. I didn't think of my life as a temple. So he knew something about the Bible where the Bible says our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I didn't think of my life as a temple, a building. I thought of it as a fun house. And the fun ran out that day in Paris. Paul said, Take heed how, not what you build, how you build. Bow your head with me, if you will, please.